Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Back to Talking Tudors, episode 146. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does help new people find the podcast. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. February's prize is a copy of the Palgrave Handbook of Shakespeare's Queens, edited by Dr. Valerie Schutte and Kavita Mooden Finn. A huge thank you to Dr. Shuti for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. Next weekend, I'll be chatting to Kate McCaffrey about Anne Boleyn's Books of Hours. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for the event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I'd love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about food and religion during the Reformation is Dr. Eleanor Barnett. Dr. Barnett is a historian of food and early modern religion. Her research explores the role of food and eating in the division between Protestants and Catholics that took place in the Reformation era, especially in the context of England and Italy. She has a PhD from the University of Cambridge. As at History Eats on Instagram, she posts daily food history facts, artwork and objects from across the world. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales.
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Eleanor. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, I've been looking forward to chatting to you for some time now. So let's start with you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Sure, yeah. So I am a food historian. Um, I have a PhD from the University of Cambridge, which uh, looked at the relationship between food and religion in the Reformations. Um, So comparing England and Italy. At the moment, I'm working on two different projects, one uh, at Cardiff University, which uses food to kind of explore moments of encounter between people of different faiths from a global perspective. And I'm also writing a book on the history of food waste. So thinking about how we've preserved food to make them last longer, um, how we've used up leftovers creatively and how we've disposed of the food waste that we have created. And because I love food history in general, um, I also run the Instagram account History Eats, where I post a daily piece of artwork, an object, or a kind of fun fact about the history of food from across the world. That sounds great. And I'll be sure to add those links to our show notes. I think it's so cool to be a food historian. I love that. It's fantastic. So when and why, I suppose, did you first become interested in using food as a lens through which to view the past? Yeah, so um, people are surprised to learn that I am, oh, I I wasn't a foodie. So I didn't kind of grow up a great cook or anything like that. For me, it actually came through my research on religion in the Reformation period. So I kind of wanted to understand how religious identities were expressed every day by ordinary people, rather than thinking solely about the will of kings and queens and kind of those big top-down narratives. And, you know, eating is is the most essential everyday activity that everybody partakes in, right? So it seemed to me to be this fruitful way um, to access the, the lives and the experiences of, you know, ordinary people whose voices we don't normally hear about in the historical record. And when I when I started looking into food, I realized that it really is a brilliant tool to access a whole host of things about the past. So not just religion. So since we, we when we eat something, it literally becomes a part of us, right? So it makes sense that it's kind of really intricately connected to our concepts of self. It's a deeply social act to eat something. When you eat with a group of people, when you eat similar things to a group of people, you form relationships and allegiances. On the other hand, if you eat differently from other people or you exclude them from the table, you create differences and you form different identities. So, you know, think about national identity. In the UK, we think of a Sunday roast traditionally as our part of our national identity, although I know it's less less commonly eaten these days. Um, but that kind of goes right back to the Tudor era. The English were already associating themselves with roast beef in comparison to the Italians and Spanish, for example, who they saw as salad eaters and you know not meat eaters. Economic identities as well. So the difference between someone eating caviar and someone eating fish and chips, for example. And again, these same kind of divisions between people um, are are formed in the early modern period versus the wealthy who were seen uh, to be associated with, of course, big feasts, but more specifically refined or seemingly refined foods like poultry. It also tells us about politics. So think about how 
important it is for political leaders to get their their subjects food if we can't if we don't have food historically or if we can't access food we riot it might lead to wars and then the other thing is that I think food really helps us access is things like overseas exploration and colonialism since finding food more food finding different food cheaper food has long been the kind of drive of those those overseas exploitations so famously when Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas he was looking for spice right so I think it has this ability to unlock so many different fields because it's so close to our identity construction and it allows us to access these big trends like political movements like like I say the development of national identity but also to kind of understand the experiences that made up ordinary people's lives. Yeah, I think it's such an interesting perspective, which is why when I saw, I think I came across your Instagram page first, I thought, oh yes, I need to invite you. I need to have you on because it's just a different way of looking at things. And as you mentioned, your doctoral thesis explored the relationship between food and religion in the English Protestant Reformation and the Italian Catholic Reformation. Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between food and eating practices and religion in the 16th century? Sure. So I think the first thing to say is, and perhaps it seems obvious, but it's important, is that food, without food, we all die. We need food to live. (laughs) So it makes sense that for, you know, in the 16th century, food was seen as the the greatest gift from God. It sustained life. And that's by both Protestants and Catholics. On the one hand, it's seen as this, kind of lowly material thing but on the other as I say because when we eat it becomes part of us it sort of acts as this bridge between the material and spiritual realms and it's seen as this kind of profoundly mysterious and risky thing you know unlike any other devotional act as I say it it, it is consumed into yourself it's also at the center of the Christian religion in the sacrament of the Eucharist. So when they take bread and wine to remember Jesus's last supper, when according to the gospels, he uh, took the bread and declared, this is my body. And then took the cup and said, this is, this is the blood of my blood of the new Testament. And based on those verses, Catholics in the Tudor era believed in transubstantiation. So the idea that the bread and wine at consecration, so when the words were said by um, the clergyman over the food, that it became literally the body and blood of Christ. Food was also, and drink, was central to a whole host of other rituals within and outside of the church in the 16th century. So in pre-Reformation England, you had a different type of bread that you would be given every every Sunday as a kind of placement for the Eucharist which was so holy that you would only have it once a year you had Easter eggs blessed at Easter in the church and other things like um, Rogation Day which was um, the 25th of April when the parish would go about and bless the fields as a way of protecting the crops from bad weather it's easy to see then how in the Reformation food was a part of these central questions so how to worship but also the bigger theological questions about the way in which the material and the spiritual world were thought to interact yes and and obviously the Protestant Reformation you know affected a lot of things including this relationship so can you tell us a little bit more perhaps about the main differences between Catholic and Protestant practices and ideas around food so i think that the protestant reformation changed what people ate how people ate and also 
as I've sort of suggested, how food and eating were actually understood to function. So if we take the last point first, in pre-Reformation Catholicism, food was something that could really take on miraculous or supernatural power. So there's a common medieval miracle um, that the, the wafer of the Eucharist would, would bleed, um, a way of kind of expressing the power of Christ's sacrifice kind of in the material world. But Protestants kind of sever this tie between the material and spiritual realm. They think that food really is just food. It can no longer be miraculous. And that really plays out in the Eucharist, as you would imagine, the central sacrament. So since Catholics think that the bread and wine is literally the body and blood of Christ, Protestants instead, over time, argue that Christ is only spiritually present. The bread is just bread, the wine is just wine. They do believe that you can receive God's grace, but only if you're predestined, if you're an elect person in the Calvinist religion. And that is granted to you kind of not through the bread, but through you. So food really can no longer be materially imbued with grace, God's holy power, as it would be in Catholicism. And in the doctrine of um, sola fide, so salvation is granted through faith alone rather than through actions, it meant that kind of how, what, where you ate was no longer a matter of salvation, which, as I say, was granted, predestined. It was, unlike in Catholicism, it was no longer, food was no longer kind of tied to salvation. So what people ate also changed. Because of these changes in how food was understood, Protestants reject a whole load of Catholic food practices that they saw as superstitious or perhaps even idolatrous. I've mentioned Easter eggs or blessing Easter eggs. That is widely criticised. And um, there's also a tradition of soul cakes or going soul link, which you may have heard of at, at Halloween time when people would go around with these little cakes asking that souls be released from purgatory. And in Shropshire, there's this old rhyme, the soul cake, the soul cake, have mercy on all Christian souls for a soul cake. So that that's rejected. Um, and then you know, some more passionate or more Puritan-like Protestants even reject things like biscuits that are shaped like religious figures. So what people are changing, of course, there's huge changes in fasting laws, which we can maybe talk about later. And finally, how people eat changes. So it produced changes in table manners, in things like different table graces that you'd say at the table, you have different images and objects that you use at the table, and just for one example, Catholics were more likely to read scriptural texts whilst they were eating and Protestants rejected the same, making the sign of the cross over food. Um, and then there were lots of changes in both countries, also in the types of festivities, communal festivities that took place as both churches kind of wanted to reform the moral behaviour of, of ordinary people. Um, so less, less drinking, less kind of big communal festivities, that kind of thing. It's so fascinating because I, you know, we often hear about other practices that obviously people need to to change and vary at this point, but food is not, I feel like we don't hear a lot about that. So it's interesting that it, that it came down to that level. And I always feel, I don't know about you, Eleanor, but I always feel for the people in that sort of transition period, maybe towards the end of Henry VIII's reign or in Henry VIII's reign, where there's this confusion about, you know, what they're supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to be worshipping, what they need to believe. And now also, as you've pointed out, what they're meant to be eating and, and how they're supposed to be eating. It must have been a very confusing period, I think. Yeah, and I think people, especially with fasting, maybe I maybe I should go on to talk about now, they end up having lots of different models that they can 
use. I'll start the story of fasting from the beginning, saying that fasting had long been this ritualized aspect of Christian piety. So in the Catholic world, you would have um, fast days each week, so Friday, Saturday, sometimes even Wednesday. You'd have fast days on ember days, which were the start of each season. You'd have Lent, of course, before Easter, Advent before Christmas, and then also lots of saints days throughout uh, the eve of lots of saints days throughout the year. So you get this, the Protestant movement argues that salvation, since it's based on faith, is not based on acts, like I've mentioned, that fasting is not, not to do with religion. So they gradually kind of reduce the, the need to take these fasts. They also criticise Catholics for implying by avoiding meat and sometimes dairy or, or meat products, but allowing themselves to consume fish, that they are implying that fish is somehow more holy or somehow better than other meats. Um, and I wanted to tell you a, good, a great story that I like from the Elizabethan Thomas Nash, who writes a play, Nash's Lenten stuff, because I think this shows kind of the difference in the way that fasting is understood by Protestants. So in the, in the play, he's wondering how these Catholic fasting regulations came to be. And he imagines a poor fisherman and his wife kind of falling to their knees in reverence when the herring that they'd caught turned from white to red in the smoking process um, and they parade it to the king who eventually takes it to the pope in italy who then himself is so taken by this wonderful seemingly miraculous change and by the strong odor of the fish that he worships the fish um, he gives it a christian burial in the end and nash says that even the embers on which the fish was cooked on were deemed holy by the pope and that's why he says ember days were so cool whereas protestants argue that all food is equally not holy. It's all equally a gift. And they refer back to the Bible, to St. Paul, who says that every creature of God is good and nothing ought to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. And so they kind of argue that Catholics are being Judaic. They're following the, the Jewish laws of Leviticus by implying that fish is better or more holy, that some foods are kind of clean and some foods aren't. And instead, Therefore, the Protestant line is that fasting should be from all food, not just from meat. And across the continent, that seems to be something that is very much associated with Protestants. So part of my research looked at Inquisition records in Venice, and you very often see the authorities, but also people saying that their neighbours are Lutheran because they didn't observe the fast days. They, they continue to eat meat on Fridays and Saturdays and so on. That's kind of one huge change in, in the way in which people were expected to eat in Protestantism. But to go back to that point about the confusion, in England, the Crown continues actually to enforce Friday and Saturday fish days and even introduces Wednesday as a fish day at a certain point. And they argue it's not a religious fast because as we know, a religious fast in Protestantism would be from all types of food for a certain amount of Time. It wouldn't be from just from meat and consuming fish. They argue actually it's a kind of secular fast that we need to keep doing because we need to support the fish industry, the Navy. So you get this interesting situation whereby individual Protestants in England might end up fasting very similarly to Catholics. But they can kind of choose what that means to them, I suppose. And, you know, whether this is a religious fast or a secular fast, it's kind of blurred. And I suppose it would be useful just to hear a little bit about what were the, some of the prominent ideas 
of the time around food and, and kind of those bodily processes as well. So in the Tudor era, dietary theory is really based on the uh, teachings of the ancient Greek scholars. So Hippocrates, Galen, Aristotle, more or less the theory of the four humours is that each body and each food as well is made up of four humours. So blood, phlegm, cholera or yellow bile, melancholy or black bile. And each of these humours has a kind of respective characteristic. So blood is warm and moist, cholera warm and dry, melancholy, cold and dry, phlegm, cold and moist. So, and that's where we get the phrase as cool as a cucumber, which I do like to use, which might not be very... Yes, I didn't know that. That's a good one. I love learning about where those phrases come from and those sayings. It's so cool. Yeah, or even uh, spicy food that we refer to as hot. Um, It's sort of rooted in that idea. It's not obviously literally heat heat hot <laughs> um, but it's hot in a galenic sense so the idea was that you wanted to keep your body in balance and if you ate too much of one thing you you would become imbalanced so that's why cucumbers kind of have a nasty reputation in in the early modern era uh, even in in Samuel Pepys's diary he he says that it's um eating cowcumbers or cucumbers as they're now known which actually killed someone because they are so climatic, cold and moist. If you ate too many, you yourself would become too cold and moist. And so you, you'd become very lethargic. And for each humour, there's the kind of imbalanced disease. So if you're melancholic, we still use that today to mean depressed. So you're too cold and dry. So even this theory is significant religiously in the sense that food can influence your mood, your your emotions, and so you might be more likely to sin. The other thing about eating to say is that they believe that your stomach was kind of like um like a kettle. So it had a, a heat source below and it was kind of cooked by the body. So if you ate too much or the wrong types of things, the top the stuff at the top might not cook properly. And it might kind of become disgusting, basically decay or emit these horrible odours or, or vapours that could kind of cloud your thinking, cloud your mind. So that's another reason why, again, food is important or, or something that's kind of religiously important. And then a thing that is, again, very different from how we think of these, I think even in history, you kind of assume that they know, you know, how the body works, but they, they have a completely different understanding of what's happening when you eat so um they think that food kind of literally rebuilds your your body parts your flesh your blood and they often have this concept of spirits that or vapors that kind of work through the the blood and other other like vessels or roots in your body so also these spirits connect your mind your soul and your body so if you eat things that produce bad blood or whatever else and since these spirits are in these in your blood you can disrupt the communication between your soul and body so again it's it's very it's a very dangerous thing full of mystery um but people it's clear to see how they would put kind of religious significance on eating um and of course you have the more strictly religious sense that gluttony is a sin um it was temptation of to eat the apple in the Garden of Eden that led to original sin and gluttony is also very much associated with the other sin of lust. So I think both the the medical and the theological literature does intertwine in interesting ways. I'm always fascinated by how people 
learn, I suppose, all of these practices and information. How is this information disseminated at the time? How do people learn about what is being advised and what they should be doing or what they shouldn't be doing? Mainly, um, you would get these ideas through your parish church. So sermon, um, there are, of course, big changes to the, the, the rituals, the rites. So there's a new Book of Common Prayer. So you would notice changes in the communion service. You would notice that it's no longer in Latin, of course. You would notice changes in the type of bread and wine, um, changes in the sense that the laity can now consume both the bread and wine, whereas in Catholicism, the laity would be excluded from, from the wine. So you would get a lot of your information through the parish church as that kind of centre of information um, and community. But clergymen also wrote treatises on fasting, guidebooks on domestic piety for those who, who could read. Um, there were lots of other printed tracts, so recipe books even. Over time, obviously, have changes in them to do with, you know, a fasting day recipe, for example, would be different um, by the end of Elizabeth's reign. And then there are more complex treatises on diet and health, which are written by doctors, which tell you about how, how to eat healthily, but which often take on kind of religious ideas as well. Um, and then pamphlets, ballads, that kind of thing, which would have reached a, a wider audience who were less literate as well. And I'd love to hear about some of the sort of specific things that people would be advised to do in order to, you know, in regards to food consumption and diet and how to stay healthy. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I think the main thing that the advice books say is moderation and diet, eat moderately. And the reason for that is kind of what I've been talking about of these dangers of overconsumption of gluttony. So, and that being bad, not just for your body, but for your soul and, and for sin and that type of thing. But the other thing that I think theologians adopt this medical language to explain how you might eat to make it a pious practice. So because I've said a lot about how uh, Protestantism gets rid of the kind of the, the power or the like the holiness of food. I don't want to suggest that it's no longer religiously important. Actually, these clergymen and medics as well, doctors, explain this new kind of reformed theology of eating in which you should look at the food on your plate and think about the symbolism that's in those material elements. And that way you might come closer to God or, or receive grace or, or unlock this predestined grace. So just how with the communion now, you're advised to meditate on the bread being a symbol of Christ's body, even if it isn't literally God's body. Same with the wine. It's the symbol of the blood. So you think about that and you, you come in, something happens inside you and you come into this kind of unity. And the same kind of happens with other types of food as well. So they advise that you know, if you have, uh, so for example, Richard Bernard in 1616 has a household guidebook and he says, if you have some sauce on your dish, you should really meditate on how the sauce is like the, uh, the afflictions mingled with God's mercies. So just how the sauce is making this food taste nicer. So does God make bad things in life feel better? Um, that kind of thing. So yeah, you're not just advised on what to eat, but also how to eat. Maybe just to conclude, can you tell us about some of the food that was consumed on, on feast days or in, important holidays? I think in, in Catholicism, you Easter is this, the big feast and you have the lamb, which some people still would consume today. 
um, which symbolizes the, the Paschal lamb um, that Jesus would have eaten on the Last Supper. In England, that declines for all the reasons that I've kind of mentioned, but they do continue to have some traditional foods. So um, during Lent, for example, on Sundays, you might dried figs. That's a tradition. They still have um, pancake day. So the Tuesday before Lent, it was traditionally an opportunity to use up all of the dairy that would have been banned during Lent. But even though they no longer have to fast in that way, that's still a tradition. Um, but the big period of feasting undoubtedly in Protestant England is Christmas and not just Christmas day like we have days of, of feasting the, the biggest feast at the end to kind of send off that period of feasting would be 12th night so 5th or 6th depending on how you calculate it of January which was the day that commemorated when the baby Jesus was visited by the three kings and they have a tradition in which you have a big 12th night cake and you would it's, it's a big kind of um, spicy fruitcake and you'd hide a pea inside and the person who found the pea in their slice was deemed to be king for the night. Sometimes you might hide a bean and then you'd have a queen as well and that's a big period of, of merrymaking. They don't quite have turkey in the same way that we would have for Christmas but turkeys are around for the for the rich but probably yeah, a nice piece of meat to celebrate yeah it must have been amazing I always think after Christmas Eve Christmas Day and Boxing Day I'm kind of done <laughs> so I don't know how they did the 12 day and so you mentioned your book obviously that you're working on now so when when is that going to be available it's still quite a way off I'm still writing it next year hopefully at some point oh wonderful no that sounds good Eleanor thank you so much this has been such an interesting and insightful conversation I thank you so much for talking tutors with us Brilliant. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's really interesting. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.